0: chapter 8 this morning, I was really struck uh, this week, and in fact, we shared um, the one voice of protest in the book of Amos was Amaziah, uh, happened to be uh, the chief of their religious observances, uh, cultic and uh, pagan or false though they were, Uh, so it was not insignificant that the only voice of protest is that voice, and I think there's certainly some indication there And and some folks believe that in chapter 8, Amos returns to his uh, former discourse, which he does certainly, but I don't think it's irrelevant uh, to what's just occurred before that. In fact, uh, he seems to be getting more to the heart of their religion here and how they were practicing uh, this religion. I shared with the young folks this morning, uh, one of the, uh, throughout the book of Amos, and I think the the scriptures in general, there's a progression that I want you to take note of, and I may mention this again, but uh, there is a, a true religion, uh, there is a corrupted religion, there's a tolerated religion, and in the end there is an abandoned religion. And you see that unfolding over and over again throughout the life of Israel. And, and it seems to me at this point in chapter 8, uh, I entitled the message, The Final Mercy Withdrawn. And and I'll explain what I mean by that uh, later. But let's read that chapter together and prayerfully. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And, And he said, what do you see, Amos? A basket of, and said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God, and many will be the corpses in every place. They will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may sell grain?" And the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this will not the land quake and everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentations And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head, and it will make it like a time of mourning for an only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine in the land, not a famine for bread or or thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. Behold, people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now for your help by your spirit, Father, give us insight and Lord help me in the communicating of this uh, word and, and, and then the commenting. And Father, I pray that you guard our hearing and our hearts from error. Lord, I pray that you may draw us uh, more closely to yourself that we may hear the warning to Israel and also hear a warning in this to our own generation. Lord, I thank you for the weightiness of the minor prophets of the word that bring to bear the truth and the righteousness, your righteousness into the context of our self-righteousness and, and expose the darkness in this world. And Father, I do pray that we feel the weight of that. But as Christian Father, I pray that feeling the weight of that will also magnify our, our, our love for mercy, our love for Christ that it might show mercy to be what it is, infinitely glorious. And so help us this morning to that end. It is an unnatural thing that we desire. Lord, it is not of the flesh. It is not brought about by the wisdom and craftiness and cunningness of man. It is a spiritual, a spirit-given reality. So, Father, make it so in our lives for your own namesake and for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This is the fourth vision as I've shared of of Amos the fifth will be finally the Lord standing by the altar but here in this vision there is this basket of summer fruit you see that in verses one through three so we've already kind of gone through the locust and the fire vision the plumb line and now we're at this third one You might say that the locust and the fire or the fire uh, were the ideas of discipline and mercy was available there. Then plumb line vision came, and that's kind of communicated the ideas of justice and indictment or conviction. And then finally, we have this vision, summer fruit, which really has the idea of judgment or a ripeness for judgment. It's an interesting play on words here uh, that I was studying, but the Hebrew uh, words translated summer fruit were getz, something to that nature. And then there's another word that sounds very much similar that's getz, which means end. And it's strange because God shows Amos a basket of summer fruit, which in itself might have been a positive image. It would have spoken of fruitfulness and abundance and provision and maybe even prosperity, getz. So, Amos, the Lord shows him this vision and he says, What do you see, Amos? And he says, Gets, summer fruit. And then God used the, uses the next word or the word akin to that that sounded like that to say something very, very different. Because God says, It's Gets, it is the end. What you're looking at, Amos, is not Gets, it's Gets, it's not summer fruit. a a promise of prosperity and fruitfulness and abundance. It is a signal of the end. And that's stunning because this was given in a time of general prosperity in Israel. They had expanded their borders out. Yes, they had uh, had encroachments of others, but they had always come through. And, and generally speaking, Israel was in a prosperous, abundant time of abundance. And the summer fruit vision may have communicated to Amos uh, something about the, the, the abundance and the fruitfulness of Israel. But God says all of that... All of that, perhaps by the means by which it was gained, is indicative of their end. It is coming to an end, Amos. The end is here. And he says later, I will spare them no longer. So in contrast, Israel's abundance and prosperity, and as I said, by the means which way they had obtained it, was really a signal or signaled their end. The Lord would spare them no longer. That in itself is a terrifying prospect. And as the mercy I've mentioned that I can see in all of these passages which I track back to the cross and to Christ himself, uh, I, I hear Christ screaming in this, uh, in this minor prophet because that is the only other solution. I mentioned earlier in the message in regards to the glimmer of light we see in this book, the one small glimmer of light. Seek me, seek the Lord, seek good that you might live. The only hope of life here is the seeking of God. But how does a people so corrupt in their hearts seek God? And it draws me back to Christ. So Christ is clearly evident in here. So that was the vision. In verse 3, I think is more of a summary statement of what yet awaited them here. In this passage, he says here, Verse 3, the songs of the palace will be turned to wailing in that day. It is over. It's an interesting thing here, but the songs of the palace earlier in chapter 5 or chapter 6 verse 4, it talked about that as one of their indictments. They were composing songs and, and, and improvising and even compared them to David who by his passions composed great psalms to the glory of the Lord where they were utilizing the same expressions of passion, but not for the Lord, but for their own lustly and carnal passions. They had turned the singing of the palace and even of the temple and their religious singing all into expressions of carnal lust and their own improvisation. There's nothing more frightening than darkness improvised. You see it in our day today. I was thought about when I was studying this one of the recent Grammys and they had some guy who was a open avowed devil worshipper and they were parading on stage as entertainment, devilish themes and and starkly dressed men and women and all sorts of perversion and they were they were expressing themselves and the culture we live in says, Amen, brother. That's the that's the goal, isn't it? That's exactly what these people were doing. They're singing in the palace, but of them, he says here, I will turn that to wailing. So this improvised, this, this composing of songs that would reflect your deepest lust of your own flesh or your actual condemnation, because I will flip that on its head and turn all of that into wailing. And the emphasis there is the wailing and the crying out, not just the weeping and not just a little tear-filled eyes, but but an expression of a groaning deep within, a wailing. So we're flipping it upside down. Mercy's over. I will not spare them. I will turn their palace singing into this. Notice as well in those passages that a mark of that judgment, a summary of that judgment as well would be, there would be prevailing death. He says the corpses will be many. In fact, the in, the indication afterwards that they were cast them out in silence, uh, one, one, one thing I was reading this week talked about, it might be a, a call for reverential or solemn silence. Uh, I tend to believe it would be in the fear of the Lord. So many would be the deaths that there would be no time for solemn recognition or occasion, no funerals, no singing, no remembrances of a life well lived or a life of a loved one. There will be no time for that. So many will be the corpses. If they're not cast out quickly, then the corruption will even decay even faster. And then disease would follow and all sorts of stench and rottenness in the street. Many will be the corpses. There were many there in those cities and in those palaces and everyone was reveling in their newfound prosperity. The borders of Israel were growing but it's going to be flipped upside down now and many not will be the citizens and those enjoying the fruits of Israel but many will be those who are dying. Death will prevail in this judgment that's coming upon them hastily removed with no no indications of any sorts of funerals. Verse 4 and 6 as well seems to be God's indictment. Uh, I thought in one point of their mercilessness, but also I think more so of their empty ritual, of what their religion had become, which is what I think ties it back to Amaziah. Amos is not done with people like Amaziah yet. He confronted him and through the word of God put Amaziah in his place. But now he's speaking to the religion that was chiefly upheld and propagated by men like Amaziah and men like him. Those who were lusting for power and influence. And now we hear an indictment of them. Essentially it was an empty self-serving religion. It says, hear this you who trample the needy and do away with the humble of the land saying, when will the new moon be over and when we can sell grain and the Sabbath may be over. So, so they were, their religion had become institutionalized in some way. They were still observing the festivals and new moon festivals and even the Sabbath. And they were mimicking that, those th- same things from Judah. And they had embraced those and, and had them as a part of their religion itself. But it was empty empty let me just say that a dark society or a culture perverted in its understanding won't necessarily be without some religion quote-unquote in fact it's advantageous that they can hold on to the religion because for the superstitious they might exercise a certain control and power and fear and trembling through that religion but it is a religion of their own making even if it adds elements of true religion that's where they were in fact, they were, these religions at this point were only endured. They, they, these festivals seem to be endured impatiently to some degree as an inconvenience. Notice he says there, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell the grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market? There was no heart's desire to observe the festivals of the new moon or any of the other festivals. There was no heart's desire to keep the Sabbath and to observe the Sabbath day and and rest in that day. Uh, There was no true, real heart desire for that at all. It was only a mere formality to be endured. Their real motivation was, when will this be over? You might be sitting in this sanctuary this morning with the same mentality. When will this sermon be over? It's getting near lunchtime. I mean, we we have some of the same effects in our own generation today. How long must we endure this? There was a time, by the way, that we had blue laws, particularly here in the South, and you couldn't do anything before 1 o'clock. They were anticipating that everyone was in the church and they would finally get out of the church. But it was inevitably that it would go away because those in the church had lost the sight of the true religion and had become institutionalized and traditionalized and culturalized, and it was inevitable that sooner or later they would wean away from the blue laws, and now you can do whatever you want to. On the Lord's day. Empty religion. And there may be many vendors out there today. Uh, in this culture saying. What time does church get over? When will those folks come to the restaurant. And the cafe today. Those who say they observe the Lord's day. And, and attribute it as a Lord's day of rest here. Uh, where, where were, where were the, when will the crowds get here? Well they had the same view of their religion. It was an inconvenience. It was only to be tolerated. It was endured. But most indicting of all, it was driven by carnal desires. They didn't want it just to be over because they were tired of it or it was frustrating or inconvenient. They wanted it to be over so they could prosper. And not only prosper, it says, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell the grain? We want to get to the market There are people out there who are buying our grain, and we're dependent upon that to sustain our luxurious lifestyle. Hurry up, new moon festivals! We gotta sell something, we gotta get to the markets. Same with the Sabbath. When will it finally be over? When can we end the Sabbath so that we can open the wheat markets? But here's the corruption. Why do they want to open the wheat markets and sell their grain? Because underneath that marketing, there was a making of the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. I have to tell you that I remember when you got a bag of potato chips and it was a full bag. And I'm frustrated with this because I open one now, and I can eat them all in one handful, and that's it. That's the end of the potato chip. I have to get three bags to, to amount to what it used to be one bag when I was 12 years old. And guess what? It costs three times as much as the bag I bought when I was 12. And there. We're doing the same things. That's what they were doing here. We want to get the markets open, yes, but not to have free trade and fair trade and fair marketing and capitalism and all those things. We want to open it up so we can exploit the people. We'll give them less and less grain and, and charge them more and more. I mean, that's, a, that's an indictment of America today. I mean, you buy a vehicle today. I, honestly, I told someone the other day, I really do not, I cannot fathom how it is that people are purchasing new vehicles. I just don't understand it. I mean, it's exorbitant cost unless you've got money set aside somewhere, but I can't even imagine the payment on a new vehicle. But then you get one, and it seems like it's breaking down constantly, and it costs 10 times as much to fix those. It seems like we're getting bigger and uh, smaller and smaller uh, uh, grain storage and a higher and higher price. That's what they wanted to get back to. That's why their religion was tolerated by them, because they had to keep it in place to control the people and to make sure that they... There was a superstition and fear by which they could manage the people. But, oh, they had to be endured because it was blocking their being able to exploit the people. So they were getting the people from both ends. By their false religion, they were misleading the people. And by their corruption, they were robbing the people blind on the other side of that. Oh, Sabbath day, hurry up and get past. Oh, New Moon Festival, hurry up and get over because we've got to get more out of the people. In fact, back when he was quoting the songs I was a minute ago in chapter 6, one of the things that he was rebuking there was how they were living on luxurious beds and sprawling on beds of ivory all the while exploiting the people and making up their songs and expressing every desire of the corrupt heart. That's the context in which they were composing their songs. So they were driven by their carnal desires. I wrote this in my notes religion for them corrupted as it was became a necessary evil to them tolerated only as a means of control while the real driving force was their greed and selfishness this is where this progression comes in there is a true religion which is what Israel once understood before the kingdom divided and even though they weren't perfect but they they had the law they had the access to the true religion of the Jews and of Israel but when they move north, lest their own lest they lest they get drawn away back to the south, they set up these false gods or these calves or these cows. In Bethel and Dan and, and so they corrupted the true religion. They kept some of the practices, Sabbath observance, uh, food and festival days and all sorts of things because they knew they couldn't alienate the Jews from their true religion uh, altogether and at once so they so accommodated some false things. So then you had true religion became a corrupted religion and by this point they became a tolerated religion. They didn't care about it anymore themselves, but it was necessary, as I said, for the control of the people. So now there's no heart in it. There's no truth in it. It's been corrupted and perverted and twisted, and now it's only being tolerated. In many ways, I think that's where we are in America today. It's, it's just being tolerated. So long as we don't cause too much trouble, it'll be allowed to go on. But when it begins to make demands or when it becomes an inconvenience to the point of sacrifice for this dark world, then they will begin to push back on religion. But in many ways, religion today in America has reached this tolerable stage, barely, but still tolerable. And for Israel, eventually this toleration would run out and there comes the absolute abandonment of the true religion altogether. They had departed far away from the true religion of Israel which was the worship of God, Yahweh. And they departed far away from that. So there is the abandonment of that religion and so it will become in this nation as well. If we go on in the way the trajectory that we are going today, the, the nation as a whole, or generally speaking, will abandon religion altogether. Isn't that what we hear today? They claim to, although self-exaltation and self-worship is a religion, but they would claim that in the name of non-religious. We are not religious. You, you know how many people now in surveys say, I'm not religiously affiliated with anyone, but I'm spiritual? Brother Shane mentioned that in his comments last Sunday night, and I see it all the time. I'm a spiritual person. So there's the abandonment altogether of true religion. And that's exactly what they had done for the sake of their own greed. Look in verse 7 and following it down to verse 10. It's a frightening thing when it says here, the Lord says, I will remember every deed. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. I'm I'm thankful sometimes that I've forgotten a lot of my deeds as a lost person and even some as a professing Christian. I'm sure I've had a snide comment or a rude thought here and there that I've completely forgot about. I, I couldn't bring it up for anything now. And you may be sitting here today and you're not conscious of any recent sin of yours, but you can acknowledge that you've forgotten a whole boatload of sins and wicked deeds, right? That's exactly what happened to Israel. In fact, they'd gone so far away from God that they were currently in the midst of wicked deeds and in many ways were completely unaware of those and it becomes such a cultural practice to act this way that it seemed nothing, not a big deal at all to them. And you and I have forgotten a multitude of wicked deeds that we have done in our past as an unbeliever and even some as we have come believe, become believers. We have forgotten all of these things. So it is a st- Stunning thing for God to say, I will not, I declare by the pride of Jacob, I will not forget any of his deeds. He knows them all. All those that they had forgotten. All those that you have forgotten. In this case, for those who reject this mercy and have pushed this mercy away and have departed from the true faith and to true God. For him, he says, I will not forget any of those deeds. He knows every single one. This is one of the reasons this book has really caused me to magnify the mercy of God because without the mercy of God and without the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice he hadn't forgot a single sinful deed I've ever committed from the day I was in, uh, exited my mother's womb every single one of them he would have remembered them and not forgot a single one and when I stepped into eternity and stood before that holy and infinitely righteous God almighty he will rehearse every single wicked deed I ever did and there will be no doubt in the universe or in my own soul in that moment of the worthiness of my eternal condemnation. So yes, I say the mercy of Christ is screaming in the book of Amos because without it, that's exactly what you and I would be facing, and that's what Israel is facing here. Notice as he says here, I just categorize these, but in verse 8, there would be a quaking and a great torrent. In verse 9, there would be darkness in the place of light. In verse 10, there would be lamentations in the place of celebration. In verse 10 as well, there would be bitterness in the place of contentment. The whole world of Israel would be flipped on its head. Everything that was would be completely reversed the steadiness and the stability of the land with no major enemies to overcome them at the moment and the prosperity of the land, as it were, that would be shaken In fact, it says it would rise up and fall would be the upheaval like the Nile. The Nile was notorious for flooding. And it would flood and pick up and wash away tons of things and people and then settle back down. So it would be in Israel. The Lord's judgment would bring upon them an upheaval that would rise up and come down and rise up again. And the earth would quake. All that stability, upset, completely reversed would be the judgment of God. The darkness in the place of light, particularly verse 9, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Maybe, maybe a figure of speech, of, uh, speaking spiritually here, darkness in light could be actual doing of that very thing, naturally speaking. In any case, it's an upending up of everything they had had expected, come to expect as normal. In the middle of the day, you expect light, right? In fact, to me, an eclipse is one of the most, solar eclipse is one of the most strange things because in the middle of the day, I've even heard roosters crowing and, and animals reacting because it suddenly got dark in the middle of the day. It's like they don't know what's going on here. This is not expected. This is, this is completely unexpected. And so it would be for Israel. In the middle of the day when you can expect light and all your activities and all your planning is based upon having daylight. In the very middle of that day, darkness will come. I'm flipping your world upside down. When it should be dark, it'll be light. And when it should be light, it will be dark. That's part of God's judgment. And to me, the common thing is everything Israel you have trusted in, everything that you have relied on, everything that, is, that you are resting in at the moment, I will completely invert that. I will take away all of your refuge and all of your resting places. I will, I will upset your world. Verse 10 there would be lamentations in the place of celebration. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning. Festivals were a time to rejoice or even to reflect upon <clears throat> the goodness and mercies of God. But uh, I'm going to turn those festivals, those times of rejoicing into times of mourning. Flipping it upside down. Lamentations. And I will bring and all your songs into lamentations. So that's completely unexpected. That's an upturning or an upheaval of everything that would be, have been expected. And the last one, I use contentment as my own word, but he says clearly to them that would be bitterness there as well. And the end of this will be like a bitter day, this sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness of every head. All these are emblems of great grieving and mourning. It'll be as though you're mourning an only son, all the more of a loss. You'll be grieving this only son, and the end of it will be like a bitter day, not a day of contentment. Not a day of contentment. As content as Israel was, and I would say as content as America seems to have been not only now in the present, but for many decades, as content as we've grown in our prosperity and our apparent abundance, that can be turned in a moment by a wrathful God into a day of bitterness. And so every nation, not just America, but every nation better take warning and take heed because God's coming now against His own chosen people Israel and He's going to turn their day of what would be joy and celebration into a day of great mourning because of their abandonment of the true religion. So every deed will be remembered. And most tragic of all, I think, is verses 11 through 14. And this is why I entitled the message, Final Mercy Withdrawn. Because the last, the last thing present was the Word of God. Amos himself is there with the Word of God. And to me, it's, it signals that the end has truly come when the last mercy has been withdrawn. And thus says the Lord through Amos, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God when I will send a famine on the land. And just to make sure they understood that he's not talking about a famine of bread and a famine of water, he says so. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. No, two things there, not only the word, they had the word, they had the commandment, they could have published it, they could have had someone read it every day, so they had the word in its written form, the Old Testament covenant, the, the, old, the Mosaic law, they had the word, but what the famine's going to be is the hearing of the word. They wouldn't read the word, they wouldn't exegete the word, there was no one coming from God to bring, a prophet to bring the word, they were, God was going to send a famine of the word of God. That is a frightening thing to, to think about. It amazes me, but I hear unbelievers sometimes on newscasts and, and people citing some passage or a part of a passage of Scripture. And I think to myself, you know, you haven't a clue about the implications of what you just said. You don't have a clue. But you're citing it because you live in a land where the Word of God had been read and had been heard and had been prevailing uh, as a, even a foundation for this nation's understanding of its own existence for, for generations after generation. But uh, what about when a day comes when God removes that mercy and there will be a famine for the hearing of the Word? I've heard some people say that famine began in the pulpits. The, pe- the preachers stopped preaching the Word and they began to move away from the Word and because it, became, it became therapy sessions and self-help and self-exaltation of, of people lost in their sins. And, and so there was a abandonment of the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word in the pulpits. And as the people were deprived of it, they went out and began to deprive their families of it. And, and so the famine of the Word in the pulpit began to spread into the people. And now look at the nation we live in got into the schools and the universities and the and the famine of the hearing of the word. That's what he's forecasting now for Israel. There's going to be a famine of the hearing of the word. In fact, we know there was an intertestamental period between the end of the minor prophets and the, and the incarnation of 400 years of silence. Not a prophet from God, not a present, not a, not a contemporary word from God. All they had was what the prophets had written and the word of God and the law of God and there was complete silence for those four 400 years before Christ came. And so it literally came true in the life of Israel. Notice how staggering this will be. But he says in verse 12 people will stagger from sea to sea. And from north even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. What happened to the word? Where was the word? You'll have people bouncing all around the place trying to find the word. Somebody will say, they they, they got the word over here and they'll go over there and they'll say, no, that's not the word. That's not what we heard. And then they'll go somewhere else and that won't be the word. And, and then they'll lose sight of it and they might themselves even be deceived because it's been so long since they heard the word that, that, that sounds like the word, but I don't remember exactly. And then they'll be vulnerable now to every wolf who would come in in sheep's clothing, even within the walls of the church. They will run to and fro, to and fro everywhere. I think, that's, I think we see that evident in our nation today. I mean, it's like, it's like people are, they know something's missing, that this ideology and this false religion that's been embraced is empty and it leaves people frustrated and confused. And where can we go to find the word of the Lord? And the Lord saying, Israel, when people get there, they're going to go everywhere. And guess what? They're not going to find it. There's not going to be any hearing of the word. There's going to be a famine of that. They won't be able to find it. And to me, that's an indication that that mercy, that final mercy is being withdrawn now. Now you are are left to navigate your way through the corruption that you yourself have brought upon yourself. And the judgment of God is coming down and you're going to see corpses laying everywhere and all of your songs of joy are turning into songs of mourning. And you're going to have to live through it or be killed in the midst of it because there's no hearing of the word left. That mercy's been withdrawn at this point. Oh, what a, what a terrifying prospect for the word of God to be withdrawn. Notice he says as well, in that day, uh, this really struck me. In that day, the beautiful virgin and the young men will faint from thirst. He's not talking about water thirst there. He's still in the same subject. The young man and the young woman. I thought about those beginning life together. They were thinking in terms of planning a family. They look around and there's destruction everywhere. And there's, there's no rationalization for uniting and even starting a family. Because you're just going to birth children into darkness. And they're going to become as corrupt as you are and as everybody around you is. And and so they're, they're, they're longing for some foundational truth and some reality upon which a young person can have hope in a marriage and in having children. But there is none. Why? Because the word of God, the hearing of the word has been withdrawn. Take that away. Young men and young women have no hope. There's no aspirations of raising a family and providing for that family and someday those children growing up and providing for you. There's no hope because there's no truth. And the whole society is built upon things absent and and the abandonment of the truth and the Word and the person of God. That's what a famine of the word, a hearing of the word brings. Despair among our young people. You want to know why young people are killing themselves at record rates today and cutting themselves and harming themselves and and boring holes in every orifice of their bodies and painting themselves? Because there is no word being heard. There is no reality upon which to build a fruitful life. There is despair and hopelessness just like this young man and young woman here. The young virgins and the young men will despair and dying of thirst. Where is truth? Where is reality? We have to build our lives upon something permanent. And it's it's not to be found. Why? Because the hearing of the word has been withdrawn. That's the judgment of God. To me, I'll say this with all my heart, that is the greatest judgment Floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes and wars and and disease and pestilence. All these can be endured if there is a hearing of the word underneath it. But when that's taken away, all those and more come upon us because then there's no hope. There's no truth upon which we can stand and build our lives. And that, to me, is utter despair. Let me just say, that was my life as a lost person. There was no hearing of the word. And I can tell you, and you've heard me say it from personal testimony, that drew me to the place that I was sitting in my home wondering why it was that I could justify living another day in the futility of this world, contemplating even the very taking of my own life because I could not bear the thought of a meaningless existence. There'd be no hearing of the word. That's where that came from. And that's exactly the judgment God has brought upon His people here. And as for those who are deceived and carried away in verse 14, as for those who swear by the guilt, He calls it, the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, Dan, and as the way of Bathsheba lives, that was their slogan to one another. And He says, of them they will fall and not rise again. False religion will not prove itself sufficient in that day. In fact, when the word of God is removed and that last mercy is removed, the the illegitimacy of everything else that you have built your life on will get exposed that's what i think cancer and diseases and wars and poverty and all the things that we encounter in this world that's what i think they are instrumental for because they will let you know very quickly what you are resting your your hope and your confidence and your peace upon and when we hear serious words that we are i was thinking this past week it's one thing to know generally speaking we would all say we're all going to die But when when they come and they say to you, yes, we are all going to die, but you, sir, are going to be dead in six months, that's that's a whole different revelation. Because immediately you begin to evaluate whether or not what I have invested myself in is going to last beyond this six months. Lay up your treasures in heaven. The kids play the old Mario, and and there's some certain things. You jump in a little tube, and you can go in there, and it takes you. And and when you get one of them, it looks like you went to heaven. There are clouds and there are coins up there. And every time they're playing that, I'll say, lay up your treasures in heaven, (laughs) where moth and rust do not corrupt. And they go along there jumping, ding, 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 getting all their treasures in heaven. Then they drop through another tube back down to earth and have to fight the enemies on on the ground. No enemies up there. And man, whenever you understand that life is a, is a vapor and fleeting, then you begin to think about what have I built my life upon? What is it that is real and eternal and will last beyond the grave? Because at the end of this, at the end of this six-month journey, I'm going to be put into a box and lowered into the ground or, or cremated or however my body will be disposed of. And then what will I have invested then? What will my millions have purchased? What will my popularity have gained? What will my friendliness and cooperation with this world and toleration, what will it have gained me at that point? Nothing. Nothing. A couple of head shakes. He was a good old boy. Some of those things, but none of those things will extend into eternity. Only what we have done in response to the mercy of God Almighty. Only what we have done in response to Jesus Christ. And praise be to his name by his spirit. He brings about the response and the the self-revelation as well. And calls us to himself. And we are united with Christ. And all that's done in Christ and all that Christ has done will carry over beyond the grave. That six-month diagnosis is not the final word in that matter. Because there will be eternal life and the fullness of that life ahead in Christ. But only in Christ. To me, that's why this final mercy has been withdrawn. Because they had corrupted and perverted this Christ. And though mercy was extended to them through locust and fire and earthquake and invasion. And all sorts of mercies had come their way. They were consistently rejecting and putting those things off as nothing to do with God. And just over and over and over and over in the face of mercy rejecting that very mercy. And now that mercy has been withdrawn. And the last vestige of that mercy evident in their world at that time was the hearing of the word of God. And God is pulling that out. I thought to myself, if I'm an Israelite and Amos is telling me this and I believe him to be a prophet of God, I hear him telling me, mine is the last voice you will hear. That's Amos' preaching. Hear this. He says that in the beginning of chapter chapter 8, verse 4. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the humble of the land. Hear this. You better listen up because God is about to remove the hearing of this from your part as a part of your judgment. Hear this, and you're never going to hear it again. And you're going to be left to your own vices. You have sown to the wind, as the scriptures say, and now you will reap the whirlwind. Here's the blessing of today. You still have His Word in your hands. And the Spirit still indwells the believer's. And God, by His grace, still grants discernment and understanding and the communication of the Word of God. I believe with all my heart you've heard at least a part of that truth today. But, but don't reject that. Don't set it aside as merely someone uh, shooting the breeze or speaking of something insignificant. Because there is a day coming in this world that I believe there will be that mercy of the hearing of the Word withdrawn and it will produce as miserable a people as he's describing here and exponentially more so because it will have been then at that time the consummation of the ages. And so we ought to be people who treasure the Word of God and make ourselves, devote ourselves to the hearing of the Word of God, whether it's gathering to hear it or whether it's sharing that Word with your family and with other groups as well. A hearing of the Word of God. Receive it and rejoice in it so long as we have it, because I believe you're going to be seeing a famine of that to some degree in this world, in the direction we're going in this world. And there'll be small pockets and small places where you'll be able to hear it, and those places will have been rejected by society at large, and maybe even named a cult and worthy of death. Stand with me this morning as we thank God primarily for His mercy, Father. I thank you today that I am a Christian. I thank you for the Christians in this room, all of us who are that, purely and simply and singularly by your grace. Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I thank you that though the world be darkened and though the world be shaken and Rattle to its core that we are standing on firm and solid ground in christ and we can never be shaken from him i love your word in romans where it speaks of who shall separate us from the love of christ and paul gives us a whole litany of things that we might propose or suppose that would and paul just rejects every one of those as capable of separating from christ lord we thank you for that mercy and lord i pray for our nation as well for for maybe even those in this room who have not yet come to know Christ. And Lord, they are awaiting such a day of judgment, an ultimate judgment. There will be no hearing of the word in hell unless it is a word of condemnation. But there will be no hearing of the word of hope and the word of truth and the word of relief and mercy once we enter into that fullness of eternal condemnation. So, Father, I pray that you might call that heart to yourself this morning. I pray for our nation that we would turn away from the deceptions that we have embraced so much so as a nation. That we might have our eyes opened and our hearts softened to the truth of God once again. Lord, I pray for faithful people who will stand in the gap and stand when they're being assaulted even and proclaim this truth. So that those people, though they don't know it to be the blessing that it is, will be hearing the word. Father, I pray for this church that we might be a part of that, not only here in our community, but in our own families and beyond, Father, into our state and our nation, even across the globe. Help us to be those who continue to speak the word of truth. And Lord, we thank you for that mercy. Have your way in these moments of invitation, Father, as you have spoken to our heart, grant and enable the appropriate response in every heart we ask in Jesus' name.